my name is Vicki James, and this is Murder Sandwich, a true crime and mystery podcast. This is a podcast where sometimes I'm joined by friends or I'm flying solo, and I like to discuss cases that tickle my fancy. If you want to keep updated with the podcast, then we do have an Instagram at Murder Sandwich Podcast. And if you do enjoy my voice and the pod, then feel free to give it a rating. I do know that Spotify and Apple Podcasts do have rating functionality, so feel free to abuse it as you so please. Today's episode was supposed to be a different topic, and it was supposed to be with a co-host, but unfortunately, we did have to change plans last minute, so that will be coming in the near future. So today's episode is actually on the Hi-Fi Murders, which is a case from 1974, so we're going a little bit further back. And I did learn about this case from another podcast called True Crime Garage. It's actually one of my favorites. It's one of my original podcasts I first got into. So I'm just going to give a shout out to Captain and Nick. And if you haven't checked them out, then I think you should. They're two guys from Ohio. And yeah, they're great. I absolutely love their banter. So with that, go grab a ham omelet sandwich and let's mow down on some true crime. The Hi-Fi Shop was a home audio store that was located in Ogden, Utah in 1974. On April 22nd, 1974, there were two employees locking up the Hi-Fi Shop. There is Stanley Walker, he is 20, and then Michelle Ainsley, who is 18. Now, right before closing time, it's around 7 p.m., approximately five or six men show up to the Hi-Fi Shop located at 2323 Washington Boulevard, and they arrive in two different vans. Now, we're going to mainly be discussing three of these men, as I did research and the others have not been identified, and we will get into that a little bit later. So the first one is named Pierre Selby. He's 21 at the time of the crime William Andrews, who's 19 at the time of the crime, and then Keith Roberts, who is also 19. Now, these three men are all African American, and that just comes up a little bit later in the story. Three of the men entered the shop before closed with handguns, but we do know that Keith remained with the vehicle with the others. Now, Pierre and William the two men we are going to be mainly talking about this entire time, they took Stanley and Michelle into the store's basement and they tied them up. And then the rest of the men and Pierre and William began robbing the store and moving all of the audio equipment into the two vans. Now, while they're doing this, a 16-year-old boy, his name is Courtney Nesbitt. He arrives because earlier that day, he asked Stanley if he was allowed to park his car in the hi-fi shop's parking lot. He wanted to run some errands nearby and just wanted to walk around to the various stores instead of driving to each of them. Before driving away in the car, he wanted to pop into the store to thank him for letting him park in the parking lot. But unfortunately, the robbery was occurring, so he was taken hostage, and he was also bound downstairs, the same as Stanley and Michelle. You know, the robbery is taking some time, and Stanley's father is really worried about him, and he's not returned home yet. And his name is Oren, and he is 43 years old. So he drives down to the store to check on him, 
And same with Courtney's mother, Carol. And they were both worried when their sons didn't return home. So when Oren and Carol arrive, they are also bound and held hostage in the basement with the others. So there are now five people held hostage in this basement of this audio store, and they are bound and they're down there waiting for Pierre, basically. Pierre advised William to go get something from the van. And so William returns with a bottle and it is in a brown paper bag. So they poured from the bottle into a cup, ordered Oren to administer it to the other hostages. Now, Oren is Stanley's father. And Stanley is the one who was working at the hi-fi shop that night. So Oren refused. And so he was then gagged. He's still bound. And he was actually left face down on the basement floor. So Pierre and William, they go around to the other four hostages and they prop them up so that they're in sitting positions and they have this weird, sketchy liquid in this cup. They tell the hostages, oh, it's just vodka laced with sleeping pills. Don't worry about it. So this actually ended up being Drano. I know. I know. I'm going to actually put... A little disclaimer here that it does get a little heavy at this point because of what happens to these poor hostages. And I should have probably put it at the beginning of the episode, but thankfully we're not too far in here. But yeah, like definitely a warning. It can get a little gruesome and I will not try to go into too much detail. So they drink the Drano and the hostages immediately suffer from blisters on their lips. Their tongues are burnt, their throats are burnt, and the flesh and skin around their mouths is actually peeling. So Michelle was actually begging for her life at this point and they forced her to drink the Drano. She was one of the last hostages to drink it. So the others have had reactions by the time it got to her. But Oren did report later that she coughed a lot less than the others, so she must not have consumed as much. So after everyone but Oren drinks the Drano, Pierre and William attempt to duct tape the hostages because they wanted to hold the Drano into their mouth and then to also silence the noises they were making from this absolute horrendous torture. But because of the injuries that they were suffering, like around their mouth, it actually made it completely unable for the duct tape to stick properly, which sounds just awful and very gruesome. So Oren was actually the very last one to be given Drano. And he had obviously at this point witnessed what was happening to the others. He'd witnessed this duct tape happening as well so when he was forced to drink it he allowed it to like pour out of his mouth and then he just mimicked what the other reactions to the hostages were now even though he let it pour out of his mouth obviously the same similar symptoms maybe just not as severe are happening so i don't think he probably had to mimic that hard So Pierre was pretty angry at this point and because basically the deaths were taking too long and they were loud and they were messy and they obviously weren't going as planned. So Pierre then decided to take out his handgun and he immediately shot Carol and Courtney in the backs of their head. 
Now, Carol was assumed to be dead at this point, but this actually left Courtney alive. Pierre then shot Oren, but missed. And he fatally shot Stanley before again shooting Oren, who is his father. But this time he actually just grazed the back of his head. So Oren was like faking it. He was laying on the ground, you know, pretending to be deceased so that they wouldn't try to do it again. So Pierre then took Michelle to the far corner of the basement and forced her at gunpoint to remove her clothes and then proceeded to sexually assault her and was telling William to leave them alone for 30 minutes. Afterwards, he did allow her to use the bathroom, but only because he was fucking watching her. And then after, he dragged her by her hair, still naked, back to the hostages, threw her on her face, and shot her in the back of the head. According to Oren's reports later, he said that Michelle's last words were, I'm too young to die. Whew. William and... Pierre noticed that Oren was still alive, so Pierre mounted him and wrapped a wire around his throat and attempted to strangle him. But this attempt failed, so Pierre and William inserted a ballpoint pen into Oren's ear and then stomped on it. This punctured Oren's eardrum, it broke, and it actually exited his throat. Honestly, I didn't even know that could happen. Like, shit. Pierre and William then left the basement, finished loading the home audio equipment into the van with the others, and then left the hi-fi shop. Now, I know there are a lot of names there in a little bit of a short time, so I do want to just stop and give some acknowledgement to the victims of this crime. So I'm just going to go through them a little bit here. So the first one is Sherry Michelle Ainsley. Now, she was the 18-year-old, and she was one of the victims of the hi-fi robbery. And she actually only started there a week prior. And she had recently become engaged and was planning on getting married later that year in 1974. Byron Courtney Nesbitt. Now, he was 16 and he was also a victim of the hi-fi robbery. Courtney did survive his injuries, but he actually suffered amnesia and he was actually unable to testify. He did continue on to graduate high school, but his brain injury unfortunately resulted in him not being able to finish college. The injury continued to affect his life. He was really unable to hold down a job. You know, he he suffered like a traumatic brain injury. He relied on social security assistance for a long time in his life. And unfortunately, he did pass away on June 4th, 2002, at the age of 44. Carol Elaine Nesbitt, she is Courtney's mother, she was 52 years old at the time of the hi-fi robbery, and she later died at the hospital and succumbed to her head wound. Oren William Walker, he was 43 years old. He did survive the attack. He was able to testify in court, but he did die on February 13th, 2000 at the age of 69. 
Stanley Orenwalker was 20 years old at the time of the attack, and he was declared dead on arrival by the shot that Pierre administered. So let's let's continue on on the rest and the trial, because I will let you know, I've already mentioned how Oren testifies. Thankfully, they did find Pierre and William. So the bodies were discovered three hours after the attack. And that's because Oren's wife and other son attended the store when her husband and her son hadn't returned home. So Oren's other son heard noises coming from the basement and broke down the door and found the victims. And this is while Mrs. Walker was calling the police from the hi-fi shop phone. So Stanley Walker and Michelle Ainsley, unfortunately, were already dead when they arrived. And then Carol Nesbitt was taken to an ambulance. And then she was unfortunately pronounced dead on arrival. Courtney was not expected to live, but he did survive, like I said before, with severe and irreparable brain damage. And he was actually hospitalized for 266 days before being able to be released. Oren Walker survived. He had extensive burns in his mouth and his chin because of the Drano. And, you know, he was the one that let it kind of fall out of his mouth. And then he also had the damage to his ear by the pen. So this is like a little bit later at night that this is happening. So the news broke in the morning of the robbery and and the crime that had taken place. And immediately after it went and broke into the media, an anonymous Air Force employee actually called the Ogden police. And they told them that William had confided in him a few months earlier saying, one of these days, I'm going to rob that hi-fi shop. And if if anybody gets in the way, I'm going to kill them. So... Immediately, Ogden police is like, okay, it might be this Air Force employee, obviously. So later, (laughs) the two random teenage boys were dumpster diving, and they're dumpster diving near Hill Air Force Base. And this is actually where Pierre and William were stationed. So two teenage boys, they called the police because they were dumpster diving in this dumpster. They found the victim's wallet and purses and identification and they recognize their pictures and their names from their driver's licenses. So immediately detectives arrive on the scene. And by this time, like a crowd of people from the air force base had, had formed. Right. And the detectives were convinced that if William and anyone else that had helped him were actually at this air force base, then they might actually be in this crowd. So detectives decide to put on a show for everyone. They wanted to see if they could gather some sort of reaction. So they're like speaking really dramatically and they're waving the pieces of evidence, like the wallets and the purses in the air with tongs. And mostly everyone that's gathered is just like standing there and like watching, like basically in awe and in silence, except for two people. Take a gander on who those two people are. Newsflash, they're Pierre and William. (laughs) So they were pacing around the crowd. They're speaking loudly. They're making frantic gestures with their hands, obviously not being subtle literally at all. So, yeah. Um, Fun fact, though, I did learn is that the detective who thought about being dramatic and doing that, he actually later received an award for that from the Utah branch of the Justice Department for his use of proactive techniques. So back in 74, I guess that was a new thing to be doing. Based on their reactions, 
William, Pierre, and Keith are eventually arrested. They learn their identity. They're arrested. And they get a search warrant to immediately search their barracks. And that's when police found flyers for the hi-fi shop. And they also found a rental contract for a unit at a storage facility. So they go back, they get another search warrant for the storage unit, and they find all the stereo equipment from the hi-fi shop, and they confirmed that it was from the hi-fi shop by serial numbers that were taken from the store. And they also found a half-empty bottle of Drano. Don't you think you'd hide it? (laughs) Like, honestly? Obviously, after this two search warrants, Pierre, William, and Keith are charged with first-degree murder and aggravated robbery. The trial was done jointly, so Pierre, William, and Keith were all tried at the same time, and the trial began on April 15, 1974. During the trial, it was revealed that Pierre and William had robbed the store with the intention of killing anyone and everyone that they came across. And in the months prior to the robbery, they were actually researching ways to do it all quietly and cleanly. And a movie that they were watching regularly was Magnum Force that came out in 1973. I have not personally seen this movie, so I'm not sure if any of my listeners have either. But in this movie, a prostitute is actually forced to drink Drano, and then she is shown to immediately be dropping dead. So after they were watching this movie, they thought, wow, like what an efficient way to commit murders. Let's do that too. I don't like, I'm baffled by these guys. Like this case is just so bothersome. Oren Walker was the star witness, obviously for the prosecution. And like mentioned before, Courtney wasn't able to testify, but Courtney's dad actually did. I think he did like some type of victim impact statement and, you know, probably talked about his hospital recovery. You know, he's in there for almost a year, like 266 days is a long time. So that's good that, you know, he was able to talk about his son and his injuries and, you know, how this is going to impact his life. And on November 16th, 1974, Pierre and William were convicted of all charges, but Keith was actually only convicted of robbery because, He didn't actually do the killings. He stayed by the truck or van. So four days later, Pierre and William were sentenced to death and Keith was sentenced to five years to life. So we're going to go through a little bit of history of these three guys. We haven't really said too much about them other than they worked at the Air Force Base. So the official police report actually does state that it was six African-American men driving and that two men committed the robbery with Keith and then another man remained with the vans and then two others loaded the vans. So unfortunately the detectives only had enough evidence to convict the three and the detectives figured that it was William who organized it and then Pierre who was essentially like the enforcer of the crime. Now other than Keith, William and Pierre I couldn't find any identification of the other men So I'm not sure if it was actually six, if it was five, if it was four, but it was definitely more than just those three, at least. So let's talk about Pierre. Now, his name is Dale Selby Pierre, and he was actually born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago, and he moved to Brooklyn, New York when he was 17. Now, I do apologize if I'm pronouncing Tobago wrong. Um, I know I'm pronouncing Trinidad right. 
but I'm a little unsure on tobacco. But anyway, so the year before the crime in 1973, that's when he entered the active service with the United States Air Force. And later that year in September, he was transferred to the Hill Air Force Base as a helicopter mechanic. And that's where he was when he committed the crimes. Now, right after he arrived in Ogden, Utah, he was actually the prime suspect in the murder of a man named Edward Jefferson. And this man was found murdered in his apartment, and he was actually an Air Force sergeant at Hill Air Force Base. And this murder took place on October 5th, 1973. Now, the police actually lacked evidence, so they weren't able to charge Pierre. And... (laughs) At the time of the hi-fi murders, he was actually just out on bail for car theft from a Salt Lake City car dealer. So like a super fabulous guy. So Pierre was given three death sentences for each victim. And while in prison, he actually changed his name 27 times. He reportedly was doing this to protect his family name from notoriety and didn't want to like affect them. But he finally settled on Pierre Dale Selby, which is literally just his name flipped around. I am not sure how you come to that conclusion after changing your name 27 times. Anyway, so he actually applied for clemency, which is basically a reduction of sentence or getting removed off of death row. And he was denied. And he was executed by lethal injection on August 28th, 1987, at the age of 34. At his clemency hearing, he is quoted as saying, The crime took a course of its own. It wasn't planned that way. People kept coming in, and I just panicked. The only way to prevent what happened was to have been moved away from the Air Force entirely. Of course, the alcohol and the pills I was consuming didn't help. Valiums, red, black beauties, and yellow jackets... Everyone has a limit beyond to which they won't go, drugs, etc., and it can alter that limit. I tell myself, you have to accept responsibility for it. You did it. You were there. You can't rationalize it. William did come out and say that he literally never saw Pierre drunk, and he never saw him use drugs. So I'm not sure how true that is then. So at the time of his death, Pierre bequeathed all of his money, which was $29, to William. Pierre also declined his last meal, instead spending his final day fasting, praying, singing hymns, and reading the Bible. His last words were, thank you, I'm going to say my prayers. Now, William Andrews, he was only 19 years old at the time of the crime, and he was also given three death sentences, which was actually a little controversial at the time because he didn't directly kill anyone, but he did admit that he provided the victims with the Drano, but he didn't shoot anyone. William also applied for clemency, and at his hearing, his lawyers pointed to his age at the time of the crime and argued that he was on drugs at the time. They advised that William was a changed man, although his prison record actually showed that he had violations for setting fires, making weapons, possessing drugs and alcohol, attempting escapes, and assaulting guards. And this wasn't just like once or twice. Like these were repeated offenses. 
So I'm not sure if you're a changed man. But, of course, all of his appeals and everything did not go through. And he was also executed by lethal injection on July 30th, 1992, at the age of 37, after 18 years on death row. His last meal was a banana split, which he shared with his niece and his sister. William's last words were, thank those who tried so hard to keep me alive. I hope they continue to fight for equal justice after I'm gone. Tell my family goodbye, and I love them. Now, Keith Roberts, he was also only 19 of the crime, and he was acquitted of the murder after the court found out that he had no role or knowledge of the murders. So he was convicted of two counts of aggravated robbery and was sentenced to five years to life. And he was paroled on May 12th, 1987, and that's after nearly 13 years in prison. And then he moved to Chandler, Oklahoma afterwards. Unfortunately, a few years later, on August 9th, 1992, he committed suicide, and that was actually barely a week after William's execution. So I'm not sure if those two things are tied together or what really happened there. I I couldn't really find any more information about it. So here's some aftermath. Okay, so the trial ends and the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and Amnesty International, they actually campaigned to reduce Pierre and William's death sentences. So the NAACP demanded that their death sentences be completely revoked because they believed that there was very high racial bias at the trial. They advised that the defendants were all African-American, but the victims in the jury were all Caucasian. And according to Amnesty, the sole black juror of the jury pool was removed by the prosecution during jury selection. But apparently he was dismissed because he was a law enforcement officer. And when he came to the jury selection, he said that he basically knew every single person tied to this case. Obviously, he would be biased. And so he was removed. The lawyers rebuted this claim and said that the jury makeup was totally on par with Ogden's demographics at the time, which was overwhelmingly white. William also accused the judicial system directly, and he accused them for being racist. And he claimed that he never intended to kill anyone. But again, this was also later rebuted because detectives cited a statement where he admitted to being the one to purchase the Drano, and he was the one who brought it to the store the night of the killings. And so to them, that obviously proves intention. Like, why would you have brought the Drano if you weren't intending to use it? And maybe that was your idea. Who knows? So they believed that he was intending to kill people. So after Pierre's execution, there was a petition or basically a stay of William's execution, and that was submitted to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And the Inter-American Commission's petition alleged that there was a handwritten note that was found in the jury area during one of the recesses, and the note said, hang the N-word. And so this was brought to the judge. And he completely refused to declare a mistrial, and he also refused to allow any questioning to the jurors about the note. Which I thought, like, that's so weird. Like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't the judge at least question them 
And like maybe someone would admit that they did it and then they could be removed. Like they usually have substitutes for jurors. Like why wouldn't you substitute one of them? Like I do agree that's racial bias completely. I just, yeah, I don't, that's just like what the fucking shit. So in December of 1996, the Inter-American Commission found that the United States actually violated their international obligations by denying William a trial free from racial discrimination. And the racial conflict actually affected the city of Ogden after the crime. Like there was lots of tension with the Utah judicial system because, you know, they did have a tendency to not execute white murderers. So I'm not, I personally not sure how I feel about that because Although I do agree that there could have been racial bias in the trial, I still don't know if that would have changed the convictions because what William and Pierre planned and did to these people were awful. Like, this is a really gruesome crime. There was no need to murder them. They could have simply just tied them up in the basement, taken the audio equipment, and then gone about their merry lives. There was no reason for them to murder these people. There was no reason for them to injure them. There was no reason to sexually assault them. Like, nothing. There was literally no purpose to doing that except for causing pain and violence. So I don't know if the racial bias would really impact that decision in seeing that. Like, we'll obviously never know. But that's just my personal opinion about it. And yeah, I don't know, like almost them doing this, like discounts what they did to the victims. I agree. Like William was very young, but he seemed to be aware of what he was doing. Whether that was by Pierre's influence or not, I have no idea. Apparently, though, William and Pierre were notoriously hated prisoners at Utah State Prison. Yeah, they were together, by the way. They were together in prison. And convicted murderer Gary Gilmore, he was on death row as well with them. And apparently he yelled, I'll see you in hell, Pierre and Andrews, as he passed by their cells on his way to his execution by firing squad. But another report that I found said that he only said, adios, Pierre and Andrews, I'll be seeing you directly. So I'm not sure if that's true. Basically, everyone in this case is dead, right? Like, The victims are all passed away now, and the murderers are all passed away now. And so it's really interesting. I shouldn't really say interesting, but, you know, this case isn't ridiculously talked about that often, but I do find it very bizarre. I'm just not sure why they wanted to kill these people so badly. I know that the detectives said that Williams was the mind behind it and the brains of the operation, I guess. But I I thought that it would have been Pierre. Like, Pierre is the one that has a little bit more of a sketchy track record. If, if he did in, indeed kill that sergeant at the Air Force, then, you know, maybe he was the one that wanted to go forward and kill more people. I'm not sure if... That's not very normal, but they do, like, we've all seen the true crime cases and the documentaries and stuff where they say, like, oh, I got a tasting for it and blah. Ugh, I don't even like saying that or quoting that. It's so gross. But yeah, it's uh, very sad for those victims. And, you know, Ogden, the city of Ogden was affected, obviously, by that for years. And 
I think it's very upsetting and obviously an awful crime. And I hope I didn't gross out anyone too badly. Also couldn't really make a lot of jokes with this case, but I just really wanted to highlight this one. I listened to it a long time ago and I thought it was interesting and captivating because I just couldn't believe that people would have that type of violence to people and for no reason, right? Like they, they just want to steal this audio equipment for money. Like they're like, why so much violence? It just, it's uneasy. It's unsettling, I guess you could say, but let me know what you think. If you guys want to talk about the case on Instagram, then yeah, like hash it out. Let me know what you think of this one and apologies for the gruesome parts in it. And the next episode will be with a co-host. I'm really excited to discuss that one. So please stay tuned for that. It'll be great. Thank you so much for all of the support, as always, for the podcast. And I will see you soon.